I had friends that done it in the past and they claimed that it was one of the most horrible experiences that they had because yeah. you need to wake up the day before, well, whatever 2 a.m. is, and then start hiking. And you have like this very, very short time that you go up, you're mm. miserable, it's cold, you see, I don't know, the sunrise or sunset, and then you quickly start to head down because yeah. the, there is a line behind you. Right. That's it was far more, it's far more majestic than that. So my, my description okay. would be, so uh, you're at base camp, you mm -hmm. take a nap, you wake up, they wake you up at 10 or 11 PM. You eat some more terrible porridge and food that you're sick of at this point. You put on everything, everything. I mean, everything. And then you look up and you see you, it's, it's dark. It's now close to midnight. And what you see is everybody's headlamp very densely together on a very, on a, on a dotted line. And then you see the dots space out and then you see them disappear up into nothing, right? Into the sky. So it's just, it's this beautiful image in front of you. Uh, meanwhile, it's torrential snow and wind. So what you're basically doing is following the heels of the person in front of you, taking, you know, slow steps, stopping where you want. You pause. You, I remember looking off into the distance. So into my headlamp is coming all the precipitation, just pure blackness. I had uh, the foresight to make a great eight-hour playlist that started at the beginning with Leonard Cohen, you know, slow, easy going. And then we got into some Bob Dylan. And then by the time, I think I timed it for six or seven hours just to get to the sunrise at the peak. That's when I had um, Led Zeppelin. And I think it was, um, it was either House of the Holy or whatever album Cashmere is from. So that, that, that was incredibly valuable. That's when I actually began to internalize how important music can be uh, important to bring a lot of sugar. Don't bring protein because it's going to freeze and you won't be able to eat it and you need energy. So I was eating a lot of jelly beans because they're less likely to freeze. Your water will freeze. Um, and it's, it's just, but by the time you see the sunrise, you first you feel the sunrise. So it, it's a weird kind of perception, right? It's a freestanding mountain and you, you, you feel it happen even though everything is still dark. And then you begin to make out the, the contour of the horizon and, everything around you and then it's just feeling of just it's like just it's truly majestic and I was I was just crying at the just the beauty and the serenity of everything and literally being on the close to the top of the world you know on my own you know just my feet carrying me on a freestanding mountain in Africa with you know a lot of other people and then I'm on the top and I was kind of you know playing around taking the requisite photographs and then my guide said okay Mr. Ian let's let's go let's go and I said nope I'm fine I'm gonna hang out here talk to some people and I was starting to uh because there's there's low level of oxygen so it's just like when you get narc if you go scuba diving for too long I rationally knew what was happening but that rational voice was maybe like five percent of my mind most of it just didn't care and then eventually on the third time he said Mr. Ian I thought Maybe he's actually onto something here and I should go down. So I don't, you know, get, get narked from being at this altitude without the proper oxygen levels. And then came down and I have really bad issues with my IT bands. So coming down the 20,000 feet was far worse than going up for me. It was like being stabbed uh, in both knees and both hips at every step of the way. Yeah, I think that we don't practice going down or stepping down in those muscles, but it's a different conversation. As much as I appreciate that, we, because all kinds of uh, pity that I've done to my knee, we always work, you know, we practice climbing upstairs. We never think about climbing downstairs and having that control on the body. But right. that will be most definitely a different podcast or with a different title, and I would love to talk about that. But, <laughs> sure. you know, 
let's talk about coffee with the K. Happy to. That's right. You know, coffee labs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, right, so Coffee Labs, we are a commercial auto MGA uh, focused on trucking and transportation, one to 100 power units. So it's everybody from a owner operator up to a small fleet that represents 50 plus percent of all the trucks on the road, 95 percent of all motor carriers out there. There are very few United Transports of the world. These are you know, literally the one percent. Um, what we're doing or why we're doing it is for those of you who don't really know, commercial automotive in general, trucking in particular, has really been in a tough spot over the past decade. We've seen annual rate increases averaging 10% each year for the past decade. So that's roughly 40 quarters of nonstop rate for everybody. It doesn't matter if you've got kind of a good record or a bad record. And on top of that, we find that the combined ratio, which is a measure of profitability, is 115 roughly, which means every dollar in premium is paying in $1 and paying out $1.15 in claims and expenses. This is obviously not a smart way to run a business. So fundamentally, what's what's going on? They're raising rates, but they're still losing money. Um, also, to kind of to look at kind of more in a more granular way, the top the, the top quartile makes money doing this. The other three quartiles are really underwater. So the combined ratio actually ranges from, let's say, like I think in the 80s to 150 or maybe higher. Um, so very few make make money. A lot of folks have just left the line entirely because they don't know how to do it. Um, and a lot of this is predicated on, I think, two core things. One is, is history. And what I mean by that is the interest rate environment. So, of course, in insurance, there are two ways to make money, right? You can do it on underwriting results or you can do it on investment income. Uh, and what happened in this decade plus of zero or low interest rates is the tide went out and it, it takes away everything from the underwriting results and forces you to stand on your own. So you can't, you can't cover up the bad underwriting with investment income. And I don't think this line of business ever got its head around how to rewrite properly. Uh, and that kind of goes to how they do the underwriting. And it's effectively a really coarse, aggregate, heuristically driven approach. So what we do is we look at a lot of granular, kind of much more dynamic data as it relates to the exposure today and moving forward for really the next 100 years of mobility. So hypothetically, if you have a fleet and it has two power units, one is uh, no, nothing disparaging against Western Star, but just like the example of a 1998 Western Star 18-speed manual, 3 million miles, and a 2020 Volvo VNL with kind of full L2 capabilities, 8S systems, et cetera. Uh, these will get probably the same quote from every motor, from every insurer out there because they just don't see a distinction between these two vehicles. Uh, the only way that they're looking at them on an underwriting basis is looking at the um, the ACV, this you know, is kind of obvious for physical damage, and the uh, the weight class. Obviously, a class A tractor will cause far more damage than a Sprinter van. We know this. We look at around 150 features at the vehicle-specific level, um, and then we debit or credit from the base rate. So if you have one fleet with these two trucks, one very, very good, one very not good, very poor, our, our model, we, we call it the K-score. We've bucketed the world of trucks into 10 deciles. And we know that the best bucket of trucks is four times safer than the worst bucket of trucks. That's simply a lens that incumbents don't have because that's not how they're looking at it. They're just simply dividing number, sorry, multiplying number of power units by the base rate. We'll debit or credit at the vehicle specific level to, to recognize the fleet for safety. So that's, that's top of mind for us and it should be for our insurance. Um, we also require telematics. We use Samsara exclusively as our 
as our uh, provider. It's an inward facing camera and an outward facing camera. So to the driver and to the road. And if you as a motor carrier don't want to comply with that, either unbind or subsequent, we will you know, terminate you from your policy. So we have 100% compliance. So that's a really interesting self-selection tool because we've had a few safety managers who love the price, uh, of course, who wouldn't, because it can be significant off of you know the incumbent rates, uh, but they say no cameras. So, okay, this this says something about the nature of your operations. I don't I don't really care what it is. I don't want to know, but you know you're not for us. Um, and for a certain segment of fleets, it's actually hard to underprice ourselves because if we offered the policy for let's say one dollar with with telematics again that we're subsidizing, uh, those fleets would probably still say no because they're just opposed to monitoring now. Uh, so that's how we, we do it. We get you know, real-time loss control, which is really exciting. So behavioral modification while drivers are on the road, if they're texting, you can't do that. Uh, there's a time and a place to do it. Uh, when there's a crash, we get an instant notice that allows us to right, package up the information, telemetry, policy data immediately provided to our TPA to determine what to do. Uh, obviously driver coaching, there's more granular data that we can use for underwriting based on where our trucks are actually hauling as opposed to uh, a radius um, and lots of other really exciting things by capturing more and more granular real-time data. So at a high level, that's what we, we do. We, it's all broker driven. So folks who aren't familiar with the line, this is agency controlled business. Um, agencies, I like to say the way to win them is stake, golf, trust. If you do those things, what will follow will be good premium followed by technology integrations. Any so other way- is- so that's your formula to win the agencies, your distribution channel. Are, are you doing direct or agencies, combination of all? It's all agency controlled business. It has been for generations. And as we've seen from certainly in personal lines, the, the myth of going direct is, is very much a myth. The agents play an incredibly valuable role. Now, the thing to recognize, obviously, is the role of the agent will change over time. So something like the, if I, I like to think about the brokerage relationship in two components, one is, is I can't believe this is a word, but broking the business, that, that actual transaction of binding the initial account, that's increasingly transactional. The robo quote for us is not that far away technically. Uh, and then there's a really important, valuable ongoing relationship, servicing the account, issuing endorsements, dealing with issues that come up and acting as that trusted risk advisor to the fleet. That's the stuff we want to help our agencies be really, really good at over time by giving them additional tools, have additional touch points during the year and make the agencies really be valuable at what they are now, just grow much more into that relationship component. Because the transactional piece is, you know, that, that's not where the future is. Mm-hmm. So where is the future? Well, I think the future is, is the agents acting more as a trusted risk advisor, distribution being embedded at various points along the value chain, which we are able to do because we capture a quote. We can issue a quote in definitely under 24 hours, contrast with incumbents in the line where it happens four to 10 weeks. And mm-hmm. you're saying, why? And I say, well, commercial insurance, things like fax machine, beige file cabinets, you know, EDI, analog clocks, all these things. Like nobody wants to be a hero in 2021 in trucking, if you're already in the line? Like, would you, as a chief underwriter, would you wanna stick your neck out and try to re-engineer this when you're already potentially losing a lot of money in the line uh, or, or just charging a lot and therefore the underwriting results are, are okay? Probably not. So, you know, when the cycle turns around, when markets soften and new incumbents or uh, insurers come in, possibly, but 
in, until then, I think that's that's how it is from a kind of a submission and an underwriting point of view. So there's a lot more we're bringing to bear, which is really built on 2022 technology effectively. Are you acting in as an MGA or MGU? Uh, we're an MGU. So we have we have the pen, we have full distribution. Uh, we've got our, our broad box and that's what we're, you know, we're excited to, to write in. Who's, back, who's backing you up? Uh, we have Sutton National. So it's a rated paper, admitted carrier, relatively relatively new, uh, but certainly mm-hmm. a management team that's experienced, been around for a while. Uh, they're finishing their their state rollout, but we're obviously matching our states, you know, uh, in yeah, lockdown the, with them. Yeah. yeah, so, no, that's great because that's usually the follow-up question. It's like, okay, great. So where, you know, where are you? So apparently right. you're going to be national soon enough. Yeah, over, over time, we're in two states now, Illinois, Tennessee. Um, that's, yep, that's exciting. We've got a couple more states coming this year. We've got a bunch more in early 2022, along with some new products as well. Uh, in trucking, you have to be able to, you have to offer, depending on the size of the motor carrier, maybe between four and 10 uh, insurance products to satisfy the requirements, state and federal. Uh, we'll be offering these two other ones very, very soon. So we'll, we will be able to be a one-stop shop uh, which means we won't simply won't be waiting for agents to come back with other quotes, which just give us a lot more, even more efficiency than we have now in being able to bind um, quotes, possibly you know far in advance of the effective dates. Just you know, getting way out in front of this. Generally, what we've seen from incumbents is they're quoting 60, 90, 120 days in advance of renewal, and sometimes they can't get them in on time. Yeah. Yeah. So well, it's in, it's in within the commercial. So people are already. It's like yeah, it's the end of the year. We need to renew everything. So let's renew fleet as well. And is there a difference between a regular fleet to, to use tracks jargon? I have no idea about tracks, and I imagine that most of the listeners or viewers don't know about tracks. Just explain the different jargon that relates to those trucks, right? Yeah. So we have uh, so passenger vehicles, always known as PPV, personal passenger vehicles, um, are you know light light duty. Um, you get to a pickup truck, you might start getting into medium duty class two trucks. I think it's three, three A, and then you basically increase as you get your uh, gross vehicle weight. We're exclusively dealing with the class eight trucks now. These are the big the big semis that you've seen. Uh, we'll we'll do some of the other lower classes seven six five over time, but initially we focus on on the big trucks. They're doing a lot of kind of over the road or OTR long distance and intermediate distance primarily because these are the folks that have to comply with federal regulations for recording your, your hours of service, um, HOS compliance. And it's supported now through an ELD, an electronic logging device, which is simply an electronic version of recording, you know, am I driving? Where am I driving? Um, am I taking a break? Is it a bathroom break, a sleep break, etc.? cetera? Um, but the principal difference, I think, between, let's say, like, a fleet of sprinter vans, like Roto-Rooter type, you know, del- del- service delivery type stuff. And what we do, I think the principal di- difference is um, is limits. So we have $1 million CSL. So for us, the kind of concern is not physical damage, it's liability. Uh, you've probably heard about nuclear verdicts, right? So these are effectively out, okay, so these are outsized jury awards um, that plaintiff attorneys are great at generating because they're well-versed in something called the reptile theory. And it kind of goes like this. So there's a horrific crash uh, and there's a loss of life or potentially from an in claims point of view worse, which is just an injury or a coma or something long-term requiring long-term care. 
And let's just say the motor carrier, um, it's, it's, it's one man, one truck, or, or it could be a larger motor carrier. It doesn't really matter. What plaintiff attorneys will say is, you know, this fleet, it wasn't just a random crash. This is a result of sustained inattention to detail. They don't wash their trucks. What does that say about their level of concern and quality? You know, the tires aren't inflated. Their management practices are shoddy. They're not doing all the checks. Look, we've subpoenaed these other files and records, and we can see that, you know, they've had these five things that happened over the last week, which clearly indicate they don't care. You must punish this corporation because this could happen to you, jurors. And this scares the bejesus out of jurors. And as a result, it acts on what's called the reptile theory, which is effectively like a you know reptilian brain. And you must kind of protect and guard against anything that's going to impact you or your, your, your family, your loved ones. And so the way they do that is just by punishing effectively the actor here. And so then you can get these punitive damages that put awards, the first one over $1 billion uh, was handed down in Jacksonville, Florida over the summer for a, you know, a terrible fatality, there's no question. But you know, is one fatality worth a billion dollars and another one worth $500,000? So uh, in the case that we were you know, potentially involved in something like this, we, again, we have $1 million combined single limit. But the big difference in this line, again, versus the Roto-Rooter stuff is especially if you're running around town, you're more likely to have a lot of physical damage claims or bodily injury claims that are not going up as high because you're simply not driving at, you know, at a great rate of speed. So I had the pleasure to meet you at ITC. We tried to, you know, to schedule the meeting at the end of the day. I came with Katie from AM Best and we sort of gang out Gang, gang up on you and your amazing team there <laughs> gang up man. yeah it's like me and then it's like with the with notes it's like hey how are we doing finally we are meeting da, 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 da. <laughs> um you raised funds recently what's the plan and i know you already mentioned a little bit about your plans for 2022 yeah Any well we raised funds the last time we raised was actually july 2020 so that was um, that was our second round of kind of a seed extension led by Lair Hippo with participation of of Anthemis. Mm -hmm. uh, and for anything else, I'll just uh, you know be be uh, silence on that uh, at, no. for the moment. No problem. Hey, when you have an announcement, let me know. We'll Absolutely. do something about it. So, <laughs> anything else for your plans for 2022? Not fundraising. In terms of uh, we will be. <clears throat> uh, Acting, we'll be adding more states. We'll be adding more products. We'll be aging more, adding more distribution partners uh, and more partners. Um, everybody along the, we like to call it the. If you look at the ecosystem, I like to think about it as from the factory line to the scrapyard. There are any number mm -hmm. of technical or human interfaces into the vehicle. So think OEM, dealer network, uh, tier one, aftermarket safety manufacturer, diagnostic provider, kind of. Um, FMC or party managing trucks. And these represent really interesting channels of distribution for us, as well as places to capture more granular underwriting data. So we're doing a lot of work behind the scenes to kind of shore that stuff up. And what we love about this approach is it's very complementary. It's kind of hand in glove. Uh, I'm not interested in becoming a tier one. The tier one is not interested in becoming an insurance company, but there's a lot we can do together to basically speak to the efficacy of a given technology or source of data or process that can translate to more accurately priced risk. And so that's a lot you'll be hearing from us in, in 22 about. And that's very, that's very interesting because I've been talking to a few telematics, car insurance, uh, most mainly on the private side. Mm -hmm. And please do not provide your secret sauce. 
but what will be the main data points that you're looking at? I know you yeah. mentioned a little bit in terms of the class and uh, that stuff, but mm -hmm. uh, we've seen that there are those that are looking at the type of road, when you drive, how you drive, how you brake, all kinds of those different data points. With that, what are you looking at? Yeah, well, to start at the so we're actually looking at the we're looking at the drivers a number of ways. We're looking at the operation, the the trucking company itself, kind of financial stability, um, type of operation they run, what kind of equipment they have, are they local, are they over the road, what kind of goods they're hauling. When it comes to the vehicles, we're looking at around 150 features. So wow. we'll look at start with you know well let's look at the history of inspections, crashes, violations. Uh, ownership. So it was originally owned in the Northeast doing local, then sold to somebody in the Southwest doing intermediate. Uh, we'll look at mechanical features on the vehicle, a day cab, sleeper cab, uh, transmission type, axle configuration. And then there's an emerging set of technology considerations that really matter. So let's collectively call these, you know, ADAS or self-driving foundational building blocks. And it's not just, you know, do you have ADAS? That's not really something you can measure, but we'll look at you know, what technical, what, what components are there? What ECUs support them? What uh, is the hardware, the software build? You know, is it patched? Is it, is it active? So that's all so, at the vehicle level. But then so, to answer your Yeah, point. so that's like almost 200 different data points on the vehicle, the company, and before you're dealing with routes and actually the driver. Because that's, most of the right. personal lines, they are just focusing, they are trying now to focus on the driver and the driver behavior, so they will exclude all the a credit car, a, a credit history and um, other things that relates to zip code. Right, so it gets a lot more complicated because you have obviously you know a business uh, and it's hauling goods, it has these other variables, there's driver, there's type of goods, there's history of the company. So the, the telematics, in addition to you know everything else I mentioned, it gives us, you know, I mentioned the real-time loss control, which is, is a total game changer. It, it takes you know typically one to two weeks to open a case file, open a claim through kind of traditional purposes. The last thing you want to do is find out that the injured party is contacting you a week later, because if they've done that, they're probably frustrated that for their, you know, potentially simple fender bender, nobody's gotten in touch with them. They talk to a family friend who says, go see this attorney, who then maybe says, you know, do you have soft tissue damage? Talk to a doctor. Now, potentially that fender bender has just turned into a $20,000 claim simply because nobody jumped. Right. Yeah, so we want to, we want to, yeah. So, so there's that, uh, but in terms of other data, we think about, yeah, so all kinds of, you know, harsh events, there's, there's harsh braking, there's, um, uh, kind of sudden lane change. There's obviously speeding, distracted driving. So the cameras, you know, inward and outward facing allows to use, let's use various kind of AI components to understand like what, you know, what, what's going on in the cab. And obviously nobody's sitting there watching these things eight hours a day, but for the purposes of, of loss control and other things, we can, we can look at video segments to see, you know, if there was a harsh event, what happened? Do we need to be concerned in real time? Do we need to put this on a set of um, reports we give to our fleets on a regular basis so they can kind of engage in, in active safety uh, mentoring and kind of remediation to help obviously drivers perform better uh, and understanding the relationship between all of those different events which you know potentially could have been uh accidents but weren't and the actual outcome because we know there's some you know what's the relationship between harsh breaks and harsh breaking and, and a crash I, like i don't think we know exactly what it is in this line of business but we know there's something there like you potentially avoided a crash by applying the brakes you know quickly 
So harsh braking alone is not is not bad um, because you can possibly have the vehicle itself identify something for you that the human would be too slow to react. So like electronic stability control, lane collision avoidance, et cetera. If the vehicle acts on your behalf, that's a good thing. And that's the nature of the technology interacting with a human in a very different way than we've seen you know, five or 10 years ago. To play that forward, we know that strategically the role of the driver is dropping. And so when it decreases, when it decreases, the role of the vehicle technology by definition plays a greater and greater role. Eventually we get to this point of L2, L3, self-driving, ADS, call it whatever you like. From an incumbent point of view, what you see is the role of the driver is decreasing, decreasing, decreasing. But what you don't see from the incumbent point of view is where is that risk going? Where is that exposure taking root? We see it's being effectively subsumed by the vehicle. And that's where our models are designed, built in 2021 for the next 100 years of mobility. But incumbents don't really have that way of understanding it. So we can assess as we learn more about these new technology components, gather enough actuarial data to support loss cost models that'll be make us well positioned to understand what this looks like. So for us, the idea of a self-driving truck, you know, sure it's new, but it's not unprecedented in the way that when we first had aviation insurance, it was new, but it wasn't unprecedented. And the reason why is the insurance industry looked to the maritime industry to help understand, you know, relative rates of crashes. There's a reason that aviation insurance is called hull insurance. By the way, who is like the more advanced OEM? I thought that in tracking it's Volvo. Is that Volvo? Volvo is absolutely known for for putting you know safety first and doing a lot of mm -hmm. it, I think internally. Uh, other OEMs you know partner with a lot of tier ones and certainly make you know fantastic components. Um, the OEM some of them have different strategies. Either they want to take it in house, they want to partner with with outside firms, either tier one or sometimes it's aftermarket folks. And and the reason I'm asking is because I had a few conversations recently regarding. Uh, personal lines, car insurance, and on a telematics and uh, the, one of the companies that offers that, and the investor was bringing that up that he doesn't understand why to invest in the, that type of companies because the OEMs were going to eat everyone up. And they usually bring the Tesla as an example. And it, it seems to me that that's not the case. On the contrary, Tesla is not going to be an insurance company. They want to claim it, but it's not that. How does it work? I, uh, Volvo or any other, we don't really need to name names. Yeah. How does it work, the partnership? And is there a risk from the OEMs to become an insurance company? Because I think about them as that's not in their DNA. Right. Well, we saw this, I think it was in the 80s with Jimco and General Motors kind of got into hot water with this. Like, you don't want to put your balance sheet against this. So what Tesla is doing, I think, is looking at what happened in, the, again, I think it was the 80s. Um, and then, like, how do we do this differently? So, you know, it's an MGA. So Tesla's taking underwriting risk. It helps them move more product. It doesn't necessarily uh, mean that uh, everybody's going to insure with Tesla. But, um, I mean, Tesla has, it has the data that can make it most accurate. I think yeah. other incumbents, like, for instance, GM is doing this now with OnStar. Um, yeah, but they are very limited. Tesla is limited to only Tesla. And that's GM right. No, absolutely. Is going to be limited to GM cars, right? That's right. Yeah. And so you're you're a family, and you own two cars. You own a Tesla, and you own a Volvo. What's Tesla going to do with your Volvo? They don't. They don't insure it. So now there's more mm -hmm. work for the consumer. Now what's interesting of Tesla with their solar panels and other stuff. If they get into home insurance, that's interesting. Oh. But no, it's a very fair point at the OEM level with trucking. It's a similar thing. If 
and OEM wants to offer trucking insurance, uh, they might be offering physical damage, which is relatively easy to assess, right? You're just looking at the assessed cash value and offering it. That's not that challenging. Where it is very challenging is obviously the liability insurance, which has to do a lot more with a lot of the factors that, that we look at. And if you're you know, a small operator, you own three trucks, you're going to turn one in and get something new. You go to your, your favorite dealership because you don't have a national rep and you want to buy, let's say, a different brand, a different OEM. Uh, that OEM will sell you insurance for that truck, but what about the existing policy you have? So some of this is just not entirely practical when people talk about you know, embedded insurance at the point of sale. There's certainly ways around this, and we've got some smart ones that we're working on, um, but for sure the really exciting thing is to help the OEM understand that people like us that recognize the value of safety uh, in terms of premium, we can help an OEM, a dealer network, et cetera, move a higher value piece of equipment because we know when the purchase price goes up for some of this equipment, the overall total cost of ownership, inclusive of insurance, goes down. Now, the concept of total cost of insurance in trucking is a pretty squishy one. It tends to look at things like, you know, fuel, labor, maintenance. Yep. I'm listening for insurance and I don't hear it. And the reason is that it varies so, so widely. You can't, you can't really account for it. Smaller fleets pay on average three times more per mile traveled on insurance than larger oh, wow. fleets. So if we, as we can, we know what this TCO represents in the payback time based on our kind of premium discounts, it's oftentimes zero to two years. So the OEM is more than happy to sell this higher margin piece of equipment. The buyer is excited as well because he's getting a, you know, a fancier new truck uh, and the payback time is zero to two years. After that, you're, you know, you're, in the, you're in the black for it, which is heretofore something that Many parties along the kind of the automotive supply chain have talked about, and I kind of jokingly say, I've heard about telematics provider X saying, use our equipment and save up to 30% on insurance. And I say, look, I'm holding both my hands here. You can see them. Who's twisting one of them to force me to give you a discount? Because that's not happening. So mm -hmm. what we need to do to be able to do that at this hypothetical dealer network is to prove the efficacy of those safety technologies. So for us, we get to actuarial R&D, which is a very much a forward-looking activity, which takes a lot of loss-cost data. We need vehicle miles traveled to understand how does this new version of a truck or fleet or component perform relative to a baseline. We prove that actuarial data, and then either in scheduled or filed rates, we can price accordingly. Now, a lot of folks that we've talked with, they said like, oh, that's hard. It's like, sure, this is our risk. Do you understand? This is not just a spurious claim we're making, but we're, we'd love to work with you to prove this stuff out. Because if we get to do it, then it means you potentially, OEM, component provider, could make a clear argument that use coffee and then save on insurance, potentially. All kinds of asterisks and caveats because we're in a regulated industry and I'm saying this is all hypothetical. Um, so, yeah, so ah, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, and so, so the point here is for us, the path forward is very clear. We want to incentivize and align for good decisions. Uh, and safety is the through line that accomplishes all that. Now, it's funny enough, we are almost reaching the end. We are like 30 minutes in. And I think that I didn't even introduce you. Oh, Because no. we jumped directly to that. It's like, okay, great. Ian White, yeah. CEO founder of Coffee Labs. And we just jumped into coffee and we talked about, by the way, why coffee with a K? Is there a reason behind yeah. it? Well, coffee with a C was taken. Okay, makes um, sense. So if it were coffee with a C, would you have a have a hunch as to why coffee? 
Um, no, no. Okay, Holy I think you would, coffee? but let me. I'll, I'll cheat. I'll, I'll help because you. Because you need you need to live on Mountain Dew and coffee in order to drive a truck. No, it's a modern insurance origins. You know, John Lloyd, sixteen seventy four, gotcha. London coffee houses. Okay, that that makes sense, uh, given yeah. the fact that most of the deals are in uh, are under. Uh, oh, what's the name of that uh, pub under Lloyd's? Um, never mind. It will sidetrack us. Um, okay, so you you were in your past, uh, not a cartographer, but you weren't making maps. How, I was, yeah. How did you get into insurance? What was mm-hmm. the move? So I had my first company, Urban Mapping, which started off, I was actually making printed maps using unique printing technology. So it was kind of a 3D map. I had one of New York and Chicago, which is po- very popular in the early oh, 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, I don't have one on hand. It doesn't actually look well on video anyway, because it's a tactile thing, but kind of morphed the company into aggregating data for the purposes of local search, as well as, um, powering Tableau software mapping. So we were there kind of the, the OEM, OEM API behind Tableau for about five years. I've sold that company to Pitney Bowes, then tried my hand in catastrophe insurance. And what was interesting to me is I was living in San Francisco and earthquake insurance, the way it's, well, the take rate was, I think, up to around 30% after the big quake in 1989. The take rate is now down to, I think, two or 3%. If you look at uh, earthquake pricing, the principal reason for economic loss is soil type, right? That's where the correlation is. Obviously, sand is very different than bedrock. However, if you go to price earthquake insurance as a consumer, the principal, um, variable they're considering apart from is your home seismically retrofitted and what's the value of the house the principal factor is your zip code so it makes you wonder what's the correlation between zip code and soil type and the answer is absolutely none right soil types vary wildly they're underground rivers there's all kinds of things that are unknown to us uh in geology if you're just looking at you know the ground before you so the idea is to use a a MEMS accelerometer, a small piece of hardware to tease out the soil type. And the, under, the method to do this is well understood in the geologic, geological literature, uh, ambient vibrations, buses going by, etc. And then once we capture that risk and we actually understand what it is by knowing the soil type, we could then potentially resegment and, and then reprice. Uh, but this is when I became aware of of reinsurance and the resiliency of this line, which is actually not so resilient. So if you think about New Zealand, Chile, Japan, you have much higher frequency of earthquakes. You have much more resilience in terms of the structures themselves and the, the pricing being much more dynamic. So I left that, but thought I really love the idea of capturing data from a place that you, you wouldn't expect as, to, as opposed to looking at USGS soil maps or something, which aren't consistent anyway. So then I worked for a couple, well, for about a year, year and a half at a company that sold to hedge funds. And mm-hmm. I was a guy going out to uh, SDKs and app publishers that were collecting location data. We would ingest it. We would build these uh, massively probabilistic models and we would then make stock picks, right? So we would look and see like, here's the foot count, the foot traffic into Best Buy day on day over a quarter. We have these models that would look at earnings. We know earnings season's coming up for Best Buy and these other retail stickers, we tickers. We then look at the confidence we would have in making these claims about their expected earnings. And depending on the confidence in that signal, we'd, we'd sell that signal, we'd sell the alpha to the quant funds who then deploy for trade or not. So it worked incredibly well until it fell on its face. And you don't really know why, because it was simply probabilistic. I left mm-hmm. that because I wasn't so excited to just simply, you know, be in, act in arbitrage, you win, I lose. 
society's not really better off uh, politics and philosophy aside. And then I left that thinking, where could I use similar ways of thinking about novel sources of data, really alternative data, for bringing to an actual industry that's kind of antiquated and backwards in its thinking. Uh, commercial insurance was introduced to me as something that's pretty compelling. I was then told, oh, Ian, you might want to take a look at the Satan's pit of insurance. So this is trucking insurance, the Satan's pit. I then had the good fortune of being introduced to my co-founder, Mike Dorfman, who comes from a fourth generation family business in moving and storage brokerage in Brooklyn, where I was also living. And so he had just quit the family business. I think his last bruise from banging his head against the fax machine has just, had just healed. Um, And so he had this idea of, no, change is afoot. Autonomy is coming. Technology is playing a much bigger role. It doesn't make sense that that 1999 tractor and that 2020 tractor are priced exactly the same because there's a very big difference. What 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 can we do? So we kind of thought about it from you know his point of view, bottom up. Here's the nuts and bolts of underwriting. Here's how existing carriers think about the line. And here's me asking a bunch of you know ignorant, naive questions just to better understand what we're doing and where can we pull this wealth of alternative data to bring to bear on this industry, which has seen no meaningful change for upwards of two generations. So that was the, that was the genesis. We originally set off to offer a, basically a, a SaaS product. It would be a score based on a unique mm-hmm. VIN, a 17 digit serial number of a vehicle. We talked to about 30 primary uh, and, and reinsurers. And I think all of them thought this is interesting. Some thought it was pretty compelling, but what they all said is, I don't know what to do with this. Uh, it's like, I don't understand why it's, it's so valuable. It can help better assess the risk. But the problem is a lot of these policies are simply written on a composite rated basis, or there's no room in their underwriting models now to account for the, the equipment at that detailed a level. So yeah. if we were to kind of sell this, we just get lost in the mix. It would still be the same 10 week quoting cycle and pricing would kind of come out in the wash and it wouldn't really be meaningful. So then we realized at that point, you know, while nobody grows up wanting to build an insurance company, at least prior to 2019, um, that's the route that we were then forced to walk down. And I think anybody should be forced to walk down it after trying every other alternative, right? Just to take the MGA because it seems sexy and exciting is, is absolutely the wrong thing to do. You better make sure that you can't do it any other way and you're solving a couple of things. And you have a really experienced team. We have the good fortune of having over 50% of our employees come from the insurance industry. Um, I mentioned my, my co-founder uh, being yeah, a course. producer for a while, Justin, our chief risk officer. He was at Great West, which is a very profitable insurance carrier in this line. I had it combined in the 90s. Um, understands the power of relationships. Um, I like to say in distribution, what really matters is stake. Oh, I mentioned this at the beginning of the call. I forgot. But the stake, golf, uh, trust, premium, and then technology. Right. And so that's exactly how things unfold with us. Uh, you have to have people that have sold the policies, placed the business and understand just the idiosync- idiosyncratic nature of a lot of these, these smaller fleets. Fantastic. OK, so we are reaching the end of uh, this beautiful conversation and I'm going to itemize the path or the formula uh, to reach relationship with agents, which will be stake golfing, alcohol. And I forgot something else. Oh, technology. Um, uh, so last question, question that I'm asking everyone besides what's your name and please introduce yourself. Please give us a recommendation. It can be something that you picked up, well, since the pandemic. Uh, it can be a life hack, a book, a movie, I don't know, HBO series, whatever you like. Uh, let me think. 
Yeah, I'm reading uh, A People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn. So okay. this is, it's a book about history. It's a history uh, told by the point of view of the vanquished, the oppressed, the losers. Uh, hmm. These voices normally aren't written in history, obviously. The book came out in the late 80s, which is when I was in high school and I never heard about the I didn't really hear about it. It certainly wasn't required. I don't remember it being on any lists uh, in university or, or high school. And I'm just frustrated that I never learned about it until now. And reading it is quite quite a frustrating exercise because it's making me rethink a lot of what I understood about the history that I've been told or or learned. So it's, uh, it's really refreshing to dive in and question your assumptions. History is, of course, all about perspective and you know who has the mm-hmm. pen so there is no ultimate yep. truth but i think perspective is invaluable and this is a perspective that simply many people haven't had the opportunity to to read yeah fantastic thank you very much ian it was a pleasure talking with you and likewise have, yeah and oh, uh, we, happy holidays sorry. and yes yeah, yeah, yeah one thing we didn't do we didn't do the swag uh section of this uh of course interview. the track right the track Do you have- so this is a, a USB uh, truck charger. It has on 2,500 milliamp hours, which is probably sufficient for like a, a last generation iPhone. It'll last you for a day. Uh, coffee gives them away to our new employees, our new producers um, at trade shows. So we're fortunate to see us at uh, our next show, which I think will be uh, manifest in Las Vegas in January, where you might also be. Um, good. We can uh, have a few available there and lots of great new swag Uh, coming, but I don't want to let that out of the bag just yet. Hey, listen, I'll, I'll take one of those. And if you have like a cool trackers hat, I will do that. I think that today, especially for you, it's uh, it's the venture bit uh, hat. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, listen, at the end of the day, you need a good uh, charger that will keep your phone alive for at least for a day during a conference because Absolutely. you don't really have time. You're just running around. But again, Ian, It was a pleasure chatting with you. And Likewise. I hope to see you soon, hopefully in uh, January. Yeah, that sounds good. Well, happy holidays, uh, healthy new year, and be well. Cheers.